Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time on earth is short and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, and discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we have the privilege of speaking to our friend, Pastor Gary Durham, and for the first time, we've finally got my friend, Sean Hamilton, on the show. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Good you very to be much. Here. Well, we're going to talk about uh, a topic that is at the top of most every media outlet right now. Um, it's, it's in the forefront of a lot of people's minds. It's a very uh, passionate topic, and it's uh, something that uh, people are typically polarized by one way or the other. Mm-hmm. In our nation, for, for sure, this is the case. And, and we're going to talk about uh, abortion, and we're going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk about the roots of where we were at, for, um, how we got there, and um, we're going to talk about the potential for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade and the impacts that might have. And we also, I want to go back and, and gentlemen and talk a little bit about the sanctity of life a little bit and why, as believers, we're so opposed to the murder of an unborn child. Huh? And I know that all of us sitting here today, we view the the moment of conception as a new life. We view this as an individual, a person, whereas those that would be our opponent in this discussion would say that it's a clump of cells or it's something that's not viable. It's not really a life. And so I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little bit too because I know there's a lot of biblical references for us to point to the fact of why we support that idea that we have. Um, Pastor, why don't you start us off with the origin of life? Well, uh, boy, that's tempting to go about <laughs> 10 different directions, J.D. <laughs> well, yeah. I trust you. <laughs> there is a lot of directions to go because yeah. the Word of God gives us so many accounts of where life starts, yes. how it comes about. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just start off by saying I would highly recommend a book to our listeners okay. by the latest book by Eric McTaxis on uh, Is Atheism Dead? I think it's maybe the, uh, the title of it. Uh, and uh, I just finished reading it the, uh, actually last week, I think. It's, it's very well written. Everything's on the lower shelf, but it covers the sciences on all the important topics today and basically makes it clear if you do not believe that human life is precious, unique in the whole universe, then you're not a good scientist. It has nothing to do with religion. You're just not even a good scientist because the science is in. And the Bible tells, and what's happening is, is that the theistic position that God is the originator of life, which has always been the only explanation we've had for the origin of life, science has never had a, a viable theory a, uh, a theory that had any standing of any kind for the origin of life. Back in the ni- early 1950s, there was an experiment made where a couple of students, you know, put a, what, together what they thought would be a good example of a prebiotic soup. They ran some electricity through it to simulate lightning. And over a period of time, they eventually got, uh, you know, an amino acid. 
Everybody started screaming, oh, we've shown how easy it is for life to start. Well, the truth is we now, back then, we didn't know anything about the interior of the cell. We thought it was just a bunch of protoplasm, you know, inside of a mysterious little box that we couldn't really look into. Uh, what has happened is, is that we now realize we didn't even get anywhere close. We didn't even get on the doorstep of life. We are, in fact, uh, as one uh, scientist put it, who is a, one of the most brilliant scientists today, he, made the, he used this analogy. He said, uh, we thought it was like uh, a very good marksman now that we had this so-called uh, amino acid that a very good marksman 100 yards away would be able to hit the bullseye eventually. He says, we now know that the target is on the other side of the universe and our marksman can't even see it <laughs> because that's how complex life is. And once we begin to understand the complexity of all the ways amino acids have to be put together, have to, how they have to be folded into to active and useful proteins, how those proteins have to be put together to form various kinds of organisms, how those have to be organized to form various kinds of, uh, of what we call symbiotic functions, how those have to be organized to form little factories inside the cell so the cell can replicate itself and you know, just on and on it goes. We could we could do this for an hour talking about all the stuff. I'm not capable of that, but there are people who are. But the point is, is that life origins, that's where we start. We have no scientific theory of the origin of life, none. There never has been one that had any viability whatsoever. So the only origin of life theory there is, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as you follow through, and God said, 127 of Genesis, let us make mankind in our own image. And that's the origin of life theory that there is, and that's the only one out there that has any even close to scientific relevance. Uh, that's where I would start, but I would also say, let me just add one thing before I quit, because I think we, we let Sean jump in on this. But the point is, is that we had the we started out years ago. If you may remember Carl Sagan, uh, back in the early '70s, saying something like this in his incredible, uh, you know, Cosmos uh, movie, that uh, you know his materialistic expression was that uh, you know the cosmos is all there there is or ever was or ever will be, okay, which was flat materialism. You know, there's nothing but atoms and energy, and that's it. That's it. Uh, and that the only thing you need for life, interesting enough, said Sagan, is that you need a planet the right distance from the sun, and uh, you need, uh, I forget what his uh, second one was, but it was just basically you need some carbon life form possibilities and so on. But but the point is, is that he had two criteria for life, therefore he concluded mathematically and statistically that there should be billions upon trillions of planets in the universe that would be capable of supporting life. Since that time, the parameters, the highly fine-tuned parameters for life on this planet have grown so beyond comprehension that we now know not only is there no possibility of life on other planets, the evidence is in the other direction that the the improbability of life being on any other planet is absolutely unthinkable because the parameters have got it massive. And some of the, for example, all of those parameters 
are so precise that if they were even altered, even in a minuscule way, that we would not be here and life could not exist in this universe and the universe wouldn't be here as we understand it and know it. In other words, in the first few billionths of a second or trillionths of a second of the so-called Big Bang, if everything did not happen exactly as it did, there would be no stars, there'd be no planets, there would be nothing. There would be, we wouldn't be here because it couldn't support life. So when God created the heavens and the earth, if he used a Big Bang, I'm not saying he did, but if he did, then it was not some kind of random explosion. It was the most designed explosion of life, or or potential life, and life-supporting potential that you can ever imagine. And it was so designed that we cannot scientifically wrap our minds around it because any parameter, and the parameters now have gotten up to nearly 500 parameters, but if any of those parameters were even minutely changed, we would not be here. And then you've got to take all of them and they all have to be that together. And then you start, you know, doing statistics out of all 500 of them being just right and not any one of them has been dialed wrong. It's just it, the probabilities go into the negative almost infinitely. I've always subscribed to the Big Bang Theory in the sense that God spoke and bang, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, as my friend Dr. Fletcher likes to say, uh, we know something about the Big Bang. We just A lot of people just don't know who the banger is. <laughs> yeah. Well said. So that, that's a great description of the origins of life, mm-hmm. right? So let's move forward just a tiny bit, and let me ask you, why did God separate man out for creation differently than he did all the other creatures and living beings on the planet? It's very clear. It's stated in the very first mention of man in the Bible. Then God said, now a lot of people don't like this interpretation, but I'm going to insist on that it has viability. Some theologians disagree with it. I'm a theologian who doesn't disagree with it, but I, I understand the, the objections to it. But here's the point. In the beginning, Elohim said, the word Elohim is the plural form of the word El. The word El means God. It's used of many different classifications of gods. But there was always the understanding in the ancient world, especially when you read ancient documents from the Sumerian documents on, you understand that there was always an understanding that there was a supreme God over all the other lesser gods, even in the pagan mind. Uh, But Elohim is a plural, and it says, in the beginning, Elohim said, let us, there you get a plural pronoun, Mm -hmm. create man, it really means mankind, Mm -hmm. mankind in our image, in our likeness. So let us, so what's what's happening here? Now, if if you follow, uh, I just went blank on his name, (laughs) Uh, the guy who, uh, and I love him, uh, Heiser, Heiser uh, Michael Heiser. If you follow Michael Heiser, he believes that uh, it would be a bad interpretation to say this is a Trinity speaking, because he believes that God is talking to his divine counsel. And Michael Heiser is an incredible scholar, and with any trepidation, you would uh, you would dare to refute him because he's a very tremendous language expert, uh, especially in ancient languages. Uh, However, this is more than a language issue. This is a theological issue because when we look at the rest of the Bible and allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, what we discover is this. God is not talking to 
his divine counsel alone, because then it says, and then God, Elohim, created man in his image, in the image of God, created he them, male and female, he created them. Now, that means that in all of that last part of that passage, it's referring to God alone. God did not create man in the image of the divine counsel. Right. He created man in the image of himself. And so the very first mention is not him talking to the divine counsel. It's the Trinity speaking among himself. And Heiser would say, well, the Trinity doesn't need to speak to each other. Well, all you got to do is read the rest of the Bible. They talk to each other all the, all time. the time. The Father talks to the Son. The Son talks to the Father. Yeah. The Spirit speaks for the Father, the Son. I mean, that's not a good theological definition of how the Trinity communicates. They talk to each other all the time. And what we're getting here is what's going on in the conversation of the Trinity. And that's what tells us man is unique. We are, we are created to be in flesh spirit. We have a body, which is we have in common with all the animals. And yes, God reused some of the DNA and some of the same structures he used to create animals. He used to create our material body. On the other hand, though, he breathed into us the nefesh, uh, excuse me, not nefesh, but the ruach mm-hmm. of uh, life, which is the breath, but it also is the Hebrew word for spirit. So he breathed into us the breath and spirit of life. So it was his breath and spirit in a sense. And he gave us an eternal, immortal spirit, and man became a living soul. And if you were in the studio, everybody's watching me put both of my hands together uh, so in a way that it becomes a double fist. And what I'm saying is that soul is not something distinct from body or spirit. It is the union of body and spirit. You don't have a soul. You are one. And, of course, we're self-conscious, self-possessive beings so we talk about having a soul because we talk about possessing ourselves. Right. But the point is, if you lose your soul, you lose yourself Right. because that's what it is. Now, it is also true that while we are dichotomous, that means two parts coming together, we are trichotomous in function. Our spirit can function, and I could take time to describe that, which I won't because that's not to our subject. <laughs> there are functions of our body, which, of course, we could just say five physical senses is one of the one ways to think sure. about that. And then there are functions of us as a solical being, which are neither purely spiritual nor purely physical. And they are our psychological characteristics, which make us human. And we are going to be resurrected in the new creation to be human forever because we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around on clouds, as some people imagine. We're going to be very much immortal flesh and blood beings. Right. And and I thank you because that's exactly where I wanted you to go with that. Um, that uniqueness, I th- for me, comes from the fact that we have this spirit that God gave us mm-hmm. from the very beginning. That nowhere in the Word does it tell us that He gave a spirit to the cows and the fish and the horses and the birds. Right? No. He no. did that for man. Right. Which makes us extremely unique in all of His creation. The rocks don't have spirits. The clouds don't have spirits. Right. We have a spirit being. Yeah. That is who we are first. And the, and it's interesting if I can add just one other thing to that, because this is what you're getting at, is that we are so unique because we're the only living being in all creation, including angels, whatever the beings there are. We're the only living being that is a solical being. Now, what does that mean? We are a being that is both spirit and body 
in unison because Adam and Eve were created to live in both the spiritual world and the material world and to right. to uh, to consciously interact with both. Mm-hmm. Because of the fall, they slowly begin to lose their conscious interaction with the spiritual world. We all have some interaction with it today. The illustration I use when I'm teaching this in a class to university students or to seminar people is I'll say, it's like, for example, if you were born with only one of your five physical senses. Let's give you no sight, no hearing, no taste, no touch. Let's leave you the sense of smell. How much of the physical world would you understand if all you could do was smell? And they'll, they'll come up with the obvious answer, almost none. That's right. You couldn't look out the window and see that palm tree. You couldn't look out the window and see that oak tree. You couldn't walk by a rose bush, uh, bush and feel the flowers because you have no feeling. You might walk past a rose bush and go, there's something there. I can I smell something. It smells good. That's all I know. But I don't know what it is. I don't know what's causing it. I would have a very limited perception. That's a good analogy or word picture of what our spiritual life is like. We have just enough sensation to know that there's there's something out there. There's more to life than just this. This is what's wrong with materialism. The materialist will never convert everybody to materialism simply because people go around with this itch on the inside of them that says, no, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Yeah. See, and that's why. And the point is, is that one day God's going to give us back those spiritual senses. and We're going to look around us and go, oh, we were only looking at half a reality. But will you expanding your your analogy just a little bit we can we could be able to smell something that was pleasurable and something that's not <laughs> and, and, and oh, I, and I know I think, where you're going there <laughs> and i think in the same sense with the spiritual realm you can sometimes tell this there's something not right yeah yeah and, or you can tell if there's something that is right well i mean when i was on my grandfather's farm as a young boy he was a dairy farmer very successful one i can tell you that there were times that i smelled it before i stepped in it Right, exactly. <laughs> and that right. kept me from stepping in it. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes we get some spiritual sense in that regard yeah. as well. Yeah. So we are so unique because, and quite honestly, mankind and God are the only spirit body beings because God did so through Christ. Yeah, Christ became one so of us. So we are that unique in yeah. all of the creation. And what does that tell you about what he's got planned for the material realm if Jesus took on him materiality and is not giving it up and never will? Well, it will never go away. He, there he, will be some form of material world uh, for all yeah, time. That's the new creation, and he's already glorified it in his own self. He's a glorified human being. So the way I look at the opponent side of the abortion argument, and, and a lot of we hear a lot of this in the news, and, and a lot of people argue, well, it's just a clump of cells. It really isn't. Their first argument is the physical body. But as a believer, my first argument is there's a spirit first. So we can step set aside the body part. There was a spark of life created a conception that becomes the spirit part. And the body forms around that. Yeah. Well, if you'll let me, I, I want to get Sean in here and see what yeah, he wants to say. But what I'm going to say, <laughs> let's come back to that in a moment because I have something that would really, I think, enhance what you're saying sure. in a way that would show that it's biblical. But go ahead, Sean. You, you look like you're ready to jump in here. You got something to say. I know. <laughs> I know you're. You've got your verbal. 
I'm more on the activist side. I mean, right. I, I've, I, that's just like, just like you were saying, you don't have to know everything to know when something is right and something is wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would say that my heart is a passion for activism in that way. And so the invitation here tonight, my mind immediately goes to the, what actions can we take to rescue yeah, the we'll infinite value, right? So we'll get there. So if you see me chomping at the bit, it's just listening, you, absorbing. You're waiting for the argument to get there, right. yes, <laughs> to establish how important it is. And, no, no, that you're we, absolutely right. And, and he's and and let me just say this: Sean is the kind of person we need because when all this discussion is through, he's going to say, "What are the action steps?" <laughs> well, and that's and, exactly what and we and need. You're right. And I want I want to <laughs> say something more about Sean um, for our listeners. Um, Sean is one of the most empathetic people. I have ever met in my entire life. Yes, and brilliant. And and I see him feel people's pain. And he weeps for people that he knows are suffering. And I know that this is a topic that just rips your heart out because I know how passionate you are as a parent, too. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you is when you, <laughs> when was your child a child, your first child? My immediate answer would be at conception. There's something. No, no. I mean, when you found out that your wife was pregnant, when did you when did you say, "Hey, I have a baby"? Oh well, uh, we took the test and it came back positive, and it was a moment of just pure, utter joy. It was sheer elation, and it is a mystery. The creation of life is something that is indescribable. Right. There's something in that moment that is beyond emotion. It's beyond the physicality. It's it is spiritual, but it's it's deeper still. And I like the way you put it that we 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 don't understand. Um, but deep calls to deep, and mm-hmm. there's something there that was yes. just real, mm-hmm. resonant, true, true in in a sense that you know things are true, and and it was a life altering moment. There's there's not a moment I can think of apart from perhaps salvation. Maybe not even marriage. It reaches the pinnacle of the of the mystery and the, the profound, deep um, something beyond you. Right? It is it, yeah. exactly right. It's 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 beyond. I expected and, when my first child, when I was told I was going to be a father the first time, I expected I was going to be like, yeah, look what I did. I'm gonna, but when I found out, it was like, it was like, it was sheer shock that. This is just an amazing thing that just happened, and I had, and honestly, I felt like I was really, I didn't have much to do with it. It was beyond my capacity. Your wife would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so when you found out, when you took a test, that was the moment that you said, "We're having a baby." Yeah. It wasn't, you know, hey, there's a clump of cells in you. Oh no! It was a person from that moment. There's so yeah. this is this is what my argument is with. The opposition side. And it comes down to a a personal choice of view. Mm -hmm. You choose, if you desire to have a child and your wife is pregnant, you find out you're going to have a baby, everybody's like, oh, it's a baby, you're going to have a baby, yay. The second you find out. Well, even people who argue, you know, that it's okay to abort and 
that it's just a fetus or whatever when they want to abort, right? It, when they want the child, it's a baby. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no question. They're they're going to fight for that, to keep that child, you know. Mm-hmm. If that child gets taken from them, they're going to be extremely upset. Yes. Right? They're going to fight yes. for it. Absolutely. But if when they don't want it, that's when it's a fetus. That's when it's not life. So, uh, because that's their excuse to get away with it consciously. And this goes back to the argument of what they're really fighting for is the right to have perception. Mm-hmm. I want to perceive life as I see it. Mm-hmm. So if today I want the child, it's a baby. If tomorrow it's too much of a burden, it's not. Right. But not only that, but they want to be able to change that decision all through the par- process of developing this child. Mm-hmm. And now, in some states, beyond that. Yeah. In fact, one state was just considering that up to eight months after the child is born, it would be okay to euthanize it yep. simply because uh, it may be undesirable and it's not really truly human yet. Because And who got, came up with that definition and what science did they have behind it? None. It's not at this point anymore. It's not science. Mm-hmm. You no. know, it, the, it, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can accept, have an arguable, like a debatable... Um, philosophical argument about Roe v. Wade when Roe v. Wade happened. That's that was when science was not clear. Right. Right. That's when you could have a debatable thing about science. From our perspective, it still was wrong. Right. Yeah. And we should have fought harder against it. But that's when you could have debatable science. Ever since '92, that's been pretty much thrown out the window, and now there's no question whatsoever. If you're going to follow science, there's absolutely no question whatsoever. Yeah, and but here's the thing. We live in a world of reductionism. Reductionism has brought us to the place of relativism, and relativism says something is only true if I believe it to be true. So if I believe it to be a fetus, then it's true that it's a fetus, or if I believe it to be a baby, then it's true that it's a baby, and therefore I either create or don't create reality, which all of us know rationally is absolutely ridiculous. Because reality is not dependent upon my opinion. And truth does not require your agreement. No. And you were talking earlier about when does something become human. Developmentalism of a, let's use their word, fetus, (laughs) is not part of what creates humanity. We don't become human at a certain point of development because nobody could identify where that point of development is. Right. Nobody knows because life, as we were talking mm-hmm. about, is a mystery. And again, it goes back to what you were saying. There's spirit involved, not just cells and physical bodies involved. There is something more involved. And everybody knows that. And that's one of the reasons why the people who fight so hard for their perception of being able to kill this, what we believe to be a human being, is that they are so trying to justify something that down deep inside keeps saying it's not true, it's not true, but they want it to be true, so they've got to kill that uh, voice of conscience is what we would call it. And uh, they would say there's no such thing because really we're just uh, all socially conditioned to believe certain things, and therefore we make up our own reality and our own morality. But the truth is is that we all have in us this something that says there's more to life than what we can see, and when we are getting ready to violate that, something inside of us screams no, and what we have to do is we have to smother that somehow, and we usually do it by raging and screaming at the people who disagree with us. See, yeah, um, in the same sense of what you were talking about with, uh, you know, 
not knowing when that moment of humanity would come and you know mm-hmm. no one would be able to figure that out but they you know they want to they want to be able to decide whenever it is what they want to decide right they're using the same argument when they're talking about transgender children mm-hmm. and like when you know my child i don't want to we don't know if it's a boy or, or a girl because we're not going to pay attention to the sex of the matter. We're, we're going to call it gender, you know, and we're going to wait till they're older and let them decide, you know. That's the same type of, you know, argument in the head, in the mind mm-hmm. um, that they're trying to do with that. Yeah, that's relativistic uh, defi- defining. And anytime you define, define things relativistically, what you end up with is ultimately irrationality because— there is no way you can ground a relative opinion in any kind of fact because it is fact-opposed. It's opposed to facts because facts tend to bring down your wishbone. (laughs) And we need to quit growing wishbones where we should have a backbone. As Ben Shapiro likes to say, facts don't care about your feelings. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But we live in a society now that is emotionally driven and people are continuously striving to satisfy an emotional need of you know acceptance and their some sort sort of control over their environment most everybody can now understands that they have very real little control over their life we're economic economically controlled we're controlled through time and you know there's just all these controls placed upon our lives Somebody in reality determines what clothes we wear, what house we live in, what car we drive, mm-hmm. how big our bank account is. All of that's done through controls, whether it be with your job, how much you get paid, through your, your educational choices and, and what you learned. All these things come together to culminate some form of control over the direction and where you go in life and how you fit into the larger puzzle of mm-hmm. our society. People are figuring out they have almost no control. So they want to graph some kind of control. I can control my hair color. I can now we can control our eye color. We can control how I see myself. If I'm, you know, I want to be seen as a gender other than what I was born with, I can claim that now. Uh Our society has made that an allowable thing. And if I don't want to have a child because I just don't want the inconvenience or I don't want my life to change from what it is today, then I want to be able to make that choice too. The problem that I have, and I know that you guys agree with me, is you're not making a choice for yourself at that point. Right. You're making a choice for someone else. That's right. And they're not getting any choice in the matter. They yeah. don't get a vote. Yeah, this whole idea that a woman has a control over her own body. Well, what about having control over somebody else's body? That would, you know, for example, uh, if you had, uh, you know, many people may remember what took place in a, university classroom when somebody uh, gave the list of things that were against the likelihood of a child being born normal and they and all of these problems and and that the mother had and and so on that would basically say this child will not be worth anything or viable and uh, and the professor gave them this whole list and said what do you think the mother should do and most of the students said she should abort and he said to them, you just aborted Beethoven. In other words, when we try to play God, we don't do a very good job at it because right. we think we can see into the future. We can't. 
we think that a few little glimpses into reality tell us the whole of reality. It does no such thing. And who knows if you abort a child today that that child's third-generation offspring cures cancer. Yeah. Or solves world hunger. Yeah. And and here's the thing. You were talking about identity just a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. You're saying that people are basically searching for identity, and the culture and the society mm-hmm. around us has claimed to be able to give us our identity. Right. And so either it can give us our identity through telling us what our gender is, if it's not, if it's no longer just two, two genders. Uh, it tells us it can give us identity through various forms of fulfillment. It tells us that our identity should come from the culture's approval. Yes. The problem is, is that if I need the culture's approval for my identity, I'm never going to have an identity. What because, kind of control do you have now? Yeah, what kind of control do you have now? Because somebody else is controlling your identity, Absolutely. and tomorrow they'll change their mind about what is right. In fact, you may be you know, the hero today, and you may be the villain tomorrow because culture just changed its mind because it's all emotional. And the reason everything is emotional is because you have a whole bunch of people who do not have any solid foundation for knowing who they are, which God gives us an identity when we come to know him and we begin to grow in that identity. They don't have that identity to grow in. They're busy trying to create one and they're trying to get everybody else to help them create one. That's the world of what we call the insane asylum. And an insane asylum is a place where nobody knows who they are and they're trying every crazy outlandish way they can imagine to create some kind of identity that will fulfill me or make sense. Yeah, whatever makes me comfortable, right? Whatever makes me feel good that this moment, and it can change. And whoever said that comfort was part of an identity, it isn't. Sometimes you learn who you are in the most uncomfortable situations. Well, isn't that true? <laughs> <laughs> Ask any soldier on the battlefield. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I think you identified what the root of the issue actually is. It's not that abortion has access in this country. It's that um, we have pushed God so far out of our lives that people don't have a perception of reality that is true and therefore we have allowed things like abortion and transgenderism and you know all this stuff to come in as acceptable means of identification Mm -hmm. self-identification versus you know getting our perception and reality from God himself which only comes when you have you know a relationship of repentance with him mm-hmm. and you have his spirit actually cleansing you and renewing right. your mind um, to bring sanity to you exactly. right mm-hmm. so that that's the 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 real problem with our country is that we've pushed God so far out of it mm-hmm. that he has so little room to actually work because he's being rejected at every turn. And I think, Sean, this might be a place where you might want to jump in, because I think what really the great tragedy of our day is this. Things that we would have even 30 years ago, 40 years ago, called child abuse. It's now being propagated by the culture in our public schools as necessary for children to be aware of all their options. So we're taking kindergartners and first graders and we're showing them pornographic pictures and we're telling them about their genitals and we're telling them that this does not necessarily define their gender and we're telling them that they have choices which actually are not really choices or somebody's fantasy out there. They've created something that we have absolutely no evidence for and they're telling children that this is something that their life should be about 
And when if somebody had done this 40 years ago, we would have arrested them. We would have told them they were child abusers, and we certainly wouldn't have let them anywhere near what we called an educational institution. Mm-hmm. But today, if you try to bring the sanity that we used to teach back into the educational system, all of a sudden you're the abuser. All of a sudden you are the freak. You're the person who is crazy. And and yet we're supposed to just turn our children over to these people and let them mold them because we know that you, a child can be brainwashed to believe almost anything. And unfortunately, I've seen it come full circle. You know, I unfortunately a few weeks ago had to do a funeral for someone mm. I didn't know, but it was a family that was loosely related to our church. We have a large enough congregation that there's a lot of people loosely related. And one of the ladies in our church one has been working with their family, but a, a very handsome, intelligent, uh, seemingly fulfilled 27-year-old young man working on his degrees and doing fabulous, uh, being very successful, uh, suddenly just shot himself. And nobody could even see it coming. And the only note he left was, I wish to be cremated. Uh, and what and what little I could pick up, what comes full circle is, no one ever told him that his life had meaning, that he was unique, that God had a purpose for him for all eternity, that he had been written into a meta-narrative, that he had a chapter to write forever if he would only allow the author, to become his Lord and Savior. And that was never told him. And so uh, here's a young man that in every way you could gauge it according to worldly issues, he's handsome, he's he's evidently been able to taste it all and do it all in one sense of the word, and yet at some point he put a gun to his head and blew his brains out and, and had nothing to say about it. Life was so meaningless to him he didn't even offer an explanation. It didn't need one. This is what inevitably happens. This I'm going to go to nothing. If I wish to do it a little early, so what? Cremate me. So that's what I believe is the, is the end of the cycle when we create a child who has no sense of life having uniqueness, sacredness, and meaning. Well, and as you mentioned, it was it's a slippery slope, this um, this drift into relativism and emotionalism and self really mm-hmm. and i think that selfism yeah that's selfism, what i call it yeah that that i mean i don't know a passage in this in the scriptures that speaks to it as well as you know romans 1 for mm-hmm. although they knew god they neither glorified him nor gave thanks their thinking became futile their foolish hearts were darkened they claimed to be wise they became fools mm-hmm. right they exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images made to look like mortal human beings Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. At the end of that, I mean, we're talking about the spirit leads us to life, the flesh leads to death. We're headed to death on this track, and it ends up hopelessness and nihilism, yes, in a sense. Exactly. And, uh, and, I, and that's, uh, and, and Sean just brought something up, nihilism is literally a plague in our society right now. And most people don't even know how to, don't even, yeah. know what, don't even know what the word means. And the point is, is that we have come to the place that the future is like a blank to most people. If it's filled with anything, it's filled with fear and anxiety. It's a blank. And I, I think I, I just sometimes 
hurt for people mm-hmm. that I talk to. I I just want to grab them and and lovingly shake them and go, wake up. If you only knew that if you were in Christ, you would be a new creation and there is a brand new creation waiting for you. Do you have any idea what Jesus created you to be and what he wants you to be? You have not even found your identity yet. And he wants to give you more than you could ever dream because you're going to be discovering yourself for all eternity in his presence. But the problem is, is they can't see past their fear, their anxiety, and the definitions that they've been told that I am something that was spawned by accident. It started in darkness. It's going to end in darkness. So there's, I'm like a hiccup in between. It doesn't matter. And it's so hard to speak that kind of mindset, any kind of truth, any kind of reality, or even, even meaningful scientific facts. The scripture goes on, it says, furthermore, as they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Yeah. In another version, it says a reprobate mind. Right. He just turned them over. And as the verse continues, it says, they have no understanding. Mm-hmm. They have no fidelity. They have no love. They have no mercy. They knew God's righteous decree, and yet they only continue to do the very wicked things. Yeah. And it talks about them suppressing the truth and wickedness earlier on in that passage. And and Sean's dead on with this passage. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what we're dealing with in this culture. And this is the context in which we now have a Supreme Court trying to reverse Roe v. Wade. And they're trying to do so in the context in which, and I think we were talking about this before we began the broadcast today, uh, the secularists are out there championing their perspective. And uh, I I don't... I don't... uh, uh, you know, think that that's something they shouldn't do. If they have a perspective and they think it's viable, they certainly have a right to voice that in this culture, at least. But we Christians have a perspective, too. And, the, and unfortunately, some of those people say we don't have any right to speak up. We should keep our mouths shut. <laughs> and unfortunately, too many Christians seem to, to agree because that's exactly what they're doing. They're keeping their mouth shut. Yeah. And evidently, and I, you know, I've said from the pulpit some of the things I'm saying today and I just simply, and I'm not here to judge anybody because I'm certainly not qualified to judge anyone, but the point is I cannot imagine personally how anyone can say they believe what we say we believe in the Scriptures, and you have and would be quiet at this moment. Mm-hmm. I, I, told, uh, I told you guys earlier when a couple Sundays ago I spoke up at the end of the service on this issue and about what was happening. Uh, I would have said that if the sheriff had been waiting at the door to escort me to the county jail. I would have still said it because they're not my authority. God is my authority, and his truth and his love guide my life. And I'm going to say, if he wants me to say it, I'm going to say it. And unfortunately, I don't understand why Christians seem to have a rag stuffed in their mouth at this moment. Well, I don't know. I don't know either. And you don't have to judge (laughs) The book in front of you does, though. It already has. It will tell you that that's cowardice. Yes. And the word is very clear about cowards. Right. They find where they end up. Yeah, the lake of fire. And I don't care if you think you have the greatest relationship with uh, God. If you're a coward, you better fix it. Yeah. He doesn't tolerate it. And when, when Christ tells us to take up our cross and to follow him, that means exactly what you you said. If it means I go to prison right. to stand for what God stands for, I do that. 
I mean, how can we read a book, a New Testament, for example, that was written mostly by jailbirds and not, <laughs> not understand that? I mean, Paul, Paul, John, Paul, come on. Where do you think <laughs> yeah, they wrote? Yeah. They had a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> That's right. Paul, in fact, God, it may be, if we think about it, the wisdom of God, he put the Apostle Paul, who couldn't sit still, he wanted to plant a church every village he ever came to. Right. He couldn't sit still. God put him chained to a Roman soldier, so he'd have to write, and that's how we got a good portion of our Bible. He was a jailbird who had to write instead of talk, and we f- were able to find out what it was he would preach. Yeah, once he saved the guy he was chained to, yeah, yeah <laughs> he well, just had nothing else to do. Well, tradition tells us that several of those Roman soldiers became believers, <laughs> and I can't imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul and surviving in your paganism. <laughs> well, I think that'd be pretty hard. You yeah. know, um, it's interesting because you talked about the um, pro-abortionists and their railing against mm-hmm. this, um, this we don't even have a decision from the Supreme Court yet. Right. We have somebody who is an activist. Mm-hmm. I don't know which side, because nobody does. But some activist leaked a an opinion mm-hmm. that was... A draft opinion. A draft opinion, thank you. Um, and this has set off a firestorm in our nation. Right. We have 300 and what, 30, 40 million people in this country. And you would think that 200 to 80 to 300 million of those people are very much against what the Supreme Court's getting ready to do. I know that not to be true. Right. You know that to be not be true. And, and (laughs) one of their... I, I hear these crazy people making these arguments, you know, you know, well, what do you, what do you, you're going to make it illegal. Well, no, it's not going to make it illegal. There will be states in this country mm-hmm. that will still make abortion legal. What it's going to do is it's going to allow states that do not want abortion in their state to make it unavailable. Right. And that doesn't mean that you can't travel to California or New York or Vermont or wherever and get an abortion. You'll still be able to do that. Right. But the argument that they use all the time is, well, what if in cases of rape or incest or what if the, it's a, a too, if it's a danger to the women's life, right? All three of those, all three of those arguments make up less than 1% of all abortions. What is more is that most states that would outlaw abortion would make an exception in the case of a mother's life. Right. They would say that if it is, comes down medical to the mother. Necessity. It's a medical necessity. They would they would make an exception for that. And the other thing to understand is, is what we're saying here, let's talk about state rights for a moment, as if we were talking about human rights. Right. For example, those who claim I have a right to an abortion, if I decide I want to have an abortion, that's my right. Well, you, I don't agree with that, but who said you had a right for it to be convenient? <laughs> who said you had a right that you could murder your child and we're going to make it convenient for you to do so? We have enough other rights that are not convenient <laughs> yeah, anymore. Right. And the other side of it is, is why wouldn't states have the same rights to be able to decide you know, as a people, the people of that state, whether or not we think this is something that is good or bad. If they say we think that abortion is bad, we think it should not be easy, that it should only be used in cases where there's a, it's a medical necessity, right. and where not the, the mother and the child both cannot be saved. So that would be a medical necessity. Right. And so uh, if 
Why shouldn't they have that right to say that? Because what happened with Roe v. Wade is that we took that right away from the states and we made an all-powerful federal government, which our Constitution basically forbids. Yeah, this is really a Tenth Amendment argument. Yes, it, it is. is. It is. Nobody wants to talk about Well, there's about a reason why they've never actually made an amendment to the Constitution because there is no actual constitutional support for it. You, know, right. you, you couldn't but, make that argument. But they've been, for the last 20 years, they've been calling this a constitutional right because they've been treating Roe v. Wade as if it was a constitutional Correct. amendment. And all it was was it, it restricted what states could or it set parameters to which states could restrict abortion. That's all it did. Now, it made it so that it became prevalent. So not once, you know, states couldn't just say, okay, you know, we can't, we can outlaw abortion. We want to outlaw, outlaw abortion. They couldn't do that anymore. That is what the, the biggest problem was. But the whole Roe v. Wade thing was based on viability. And even the liberal justice who wrote the opinion said, alluded to viability being a big deal. Yes. And in, that's why in 92, there was a, like, they, they pulled back a little bit on Roe v. Wade because science had come far enough for us to say, okay, viability is at so many weeks. Now we have the, the new case that's triggered this because we know viability can be happened earlier, mm-hmm. you know, but what the whole thing that's going on with, if you read the opinion, the draft opinion, is that they're now saying, okay, let's, let, let's just let the states decide this because it's not a constitutional matter. And so that's, you know, that, that's what it's going back to. Right. Yeah. And it should. And then the people in, especially the Christians in every state, should stand up and say, we believe that God says this is wrong, right. that this is murder, and that this child has a right to life because this, station, this nation was founded on the fact that we all have the right to life. You know, that's, uh, in, that's in our Declaration of Independence. And also it's part of, the, of our constitutional understanding. So the fact that this nation was founded on that, the only thing you can do is try to somehow draw a line and say they're not human before they come through the birth canal, they're human after they do, and then somebody's now tried to move that to eight months after they've come through the birth canal. Where does it end? Pretty soon they can walk up and blow your head off and say, I don't think you're human. Yeah, you should never have been born. You should never have been born, yeah. This is a 50-year (laughs) post-abortion. Yes, And, and so the point is none of this is rational. This no, is this is no. all emotion driven. It's all convenience driven. It's all comfort driven. It has nothing to do with rational, logical arguments. And so we're living in the madhouse of irrationality, trying to make rational arguments. And uh, maybe the Bible has something to say to that. It says, you know, you shouldn't argue with a fool because you end up looking like a fool yourself. <laughs> yeah. So there were a couple of points, and, and I know you look like... Well, you there's a quote something. that I'd like to read, and we've been dancing around... Go ahead and say it, because I, I want to go back and say a couple of things, too. Okay, thank you. There is a, um, an excellent article in the dailywire.com on May the 8th from Tim Mead. It's called How Science Has Won the Abortion Debate. It's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'd like to just read a little portion here. Modern ultrasound technology lets us see with our eyes what both science and our hearts have long known, which is the undeniable humanity of the unborn child. Science confirms and ultrasound shows that unborn babies respond to touch and taste just like you and me. 
With fully formed noses and lips, eyes, eyebrows, fingers, and toes, they explore the world around them. They are capable of feeling even excruciating pain. When you see a baby sucking its thumb at 18 weeks, smiling, clapping, it becomes very, very difficult to square the idea that a 20-week-old, that this unborn baby or fetus is discardable. The more I advance, Dr. Colleen Malloy says, in my field of neonatology, the more it becomes the logical choice to recognize the developing fetus for what it is. Instead of some subhuman form, it just becomes so obvious that these are just developing humans. And all humans are either developing or decaying to some degree. There comes a pinnacle in your life where you stop developing and you start undeveloping, so to speak. We call it <laughs> aging. Be careful where you go with that because <laughs> then we'll have eugenics or whatever they call it, right? <laughs> That'll be the next argument. Yeah, well, be the... you're 75, we're going to have to put you down. Yeah. <laughs> It says, modern science reveals the humanity of the unborn child. The truth is now visible for all of America. It's time to give the unborn a voice in this matter of life. Right. Right. Yeah. That's very good. I think um, the Daily Wire is coming out with a uh, documentary on Roe v. Wade and, and you know, what brought it about and, and what, it, what it's mm -hmm. done to this country. Yeah. Well, we should actually be deeply, deeply disturbed. We have made, unfortunately, through the millions we have slaughtered, we have made Hitler look like a novice. We've made, we've almost, you know, we have equaled Stalin. Well, if you uh, if you include chemical abortions, we've surpassed oh, yeah. Stalin well, and, and Mao, Zedong, Mao Zedong. Yes. Yeah. Physical abortion, 64 million and approximately the same amount in chemical. Yeah, and most people do not understand that atheism was behind all of those mass murderers. Nobody wants to talk about that. They, you know, they won't talk about the atrocities of Christianity. Yeah. And the truth is the atrocities of Christianity are like a drop in the ocean compared to Stalin and Mao Zedong and Hitler and all of these atheistic regimes that murdered hundreds of millions of right. people simply because of what they believed or they were politically unacceptable or whatever because they simply didn't matter if they were in the way of the state. And now we're trying to somehow rebaptize this Marxist ideology into a cultural Marxism, which basically says that, you know, we should divide everybody up into little subgroups and put them into war with each other as oppressor and oppressed. And then we should make sure that the oppressor is the only one that has the right to speak. I mean, the oppressor is the only one that has the right to speak. And the oppressors, even though they may not have been an oppressor, but they're labeled an oppressor, have to keep their mouth shut. And all we're doing is it's called disintegration of civil society. And uh, that this is, this is a sad thing to happen because what we're doing is we're seeing basically the dropping of the H-bomb on everything that has been created with the hard sweat and blood of so many people for hundreds of years. We're literally dropping a bomb and we have nothing to replace it. If you listen... You know, I, for example, when I listen to the atheists argue against the Christian worldview and all that it's done in history, and even giving us science, because the, 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 the vote is in, the history's in, science and, and was created by Christianity. And there is no argument on that any longer uh, to anybody who's willing to look at the facts. But the point is, is that when I look at that, the atheists may say, well, 
you know, your Christian God allows a lot of pain in the world. Well, I have answers for that, and the Bible has answers for that, and why there's pain. It has to do with the fact that God does give moral freedom, and we abuse that freedom, and therefore we have brought, put ourselves in a terrible dilemma, and there is going to be pain, but our God's the only one who embraces that pain and takes it on himself. But right. the point is, when I ask the atheist, what's your answer for pain and evil? They change the subject, because they don't have one. They absolutely have zero answers for it. This has been the Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today in Always Coming the Wilderness, we've been talking about abortion and human life and the importance thereof. If you would, please take an opportunity and listen to us next week as we continue this discussion with Pastor Gary and with Sean, and we'll kind of lead into some action steps that each of us can do to help with this fight. So if you would, please take a moment, subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to visit our new website at vrbroadcast.org where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Mm-hmm.